Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where... I, I, I don't know, Lauren. I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Karen Peterson. With me as always is Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hi. There's betrayal. I don't know. There's there's vile betrayal. That's, there, what, that's what happens is. on this podcast. That is that is true. <laughs> I I I wallow and I grieve and I apologize for not just, hating Dune. <laughs> I just I can't believe it. I can't believe that you've done this to me. Me specifically. Like this is this is just a personal attack. Karen. It was. It was. I was watching the whole thing going, I cannot wait to piss off Lauren <laughs> by not hating a Denis Villeneuve film. So. I know. I know. I understand. <laughs> Actually, my experience of watching it was, all right, here we go. It's getting started. Okay. Huh. That actually looks kind of cool. Huh. Wait, am I enjoying this? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I, I do have to insist that you watch the, the David Lynch version. I will. If you, if you have yeah. not seen it yet. And and make comparisons because obviously one is inherently superior to the other. <laughs> um, Which you know because you've only seen one of them. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I already know it. No, I am actually going to watch Dune. Uh, <laughs> even despite the fact, despite the fact, I mean, I'm not going to watch Dune. Just like I am going to watch Dune. I'm just going to watch it in like half hour increments, and <laughs> and uh, and have my dog like chewing on his his squeaky toy in the background the entire time. That that sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> which is about how I watch Titan. So um, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> you know a, another film that defies explanation about why it's why it's good <laughs> yeah definitely uh okay well we have a lot of stuff that we wanted to to talk about today but before we do um we just wanted to uh just very briefly um i guess just honor um helena hutchins who was killed this week and um there's a lot of just a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors, a lot of misinformation, of course, as there is with any tragedy that is going around right now about what happened and why it happened and how it happened. And we don't know the truth yet. It just, you know, it's been two days and I just, I just think, you know, our hearts are, are heavy. Uh, we feel just so unbearably sad for the people that are involved in this, especially, her family, um, everyone who was there that day, like just what a, a horrible, horrible thing to have happened. And it just, yeah. So anyway, we just wanted to to mention that briefly. Yeah. I think at this point, you know, there, like you say, there's so much speculation going on. Um, and it's really like, you know, in, in this, in this case, let's just see what the investigation 
turns up and i'm certain that there's there's going to be a lot of conversation about onset safety generally which as there should be yeah um but this one is just like it's it's so it's so sad it's so sad like what um that something like this could happen and that that there is that and also the people are spending so much time trying to you know trying to speculate on this or that or like using this as a as like a political wedge or something like that and it's just not it is it isn't appropriate and some of the trades have not treated it appropriately either yeah well and and just just people in general have been mm -hmm. really horrible and it's been so disheartening to see the way that that people have used this as like almost like a got like not even almost. They've been using it as a gotcha against Alec Baldwin. Like, oh, you've been yeah. this terrible person for years, and now look what happens. Like, oh my gosh, he didn't. The the most likely scenario is he did not do this on purpose. This is a terrible thing for anybody to have to go through, and to sit there and and somehow like ignore the fact that a woman died, ignore the fact that another man was very injured, and. And to to use this as like, like you said, a wedge instead of a moment to like come together is is mm -hmm. just that just to me shows exactly how um, just damaged we are in this country. Yeah. Well, and and you do have to say there are a lot of people who, and I've seen a lot of it on on social media, et cetera, who are just basically talking about um, her H Hutchins' influence. Yeah. And um and what a talent she was. And and honestly, you know, she shouldn't have to be a talent to be mourned. Um, but she she really was a greatly talented cinematographer and um and as numerous people pointed out, one of the very few female cinematographers mm -hmm. um working today. So it's hard for women to get uh to get to get into this industry and particularly as cinematographers. And so that that loss is also very painful. And I, I believe that um, her family and, and some of her colleagues and, and mentors have actually established a fund uh, in her name to try to bring more female cinematographers into uh, into the industry, which is, yeah. is good. It's a good kind of remembrance of her. But still, you know, this is like this is a, this was a young woman who it seems like was just not was just in the wrong place, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We have no idea what happened. We don't know what the breakdown was or where things went wrong, but this is a terrible accident. She was, yeah, she was 42 years old. Um, she, her, her career was on the rise. Like, she's been recently, in the last year or two, named, like, this, you know, uh, DP on the rise, DP to watch, you know, that kind of thing. And, and to to see this happen is just, it's, it's, I mean, it is a tragedy. And, um, I hope that, that some, I mean, you don't, I don't want to say like, well, we hope that something good comes out of it, but cause I mean, it's still a tragedy at the end of the day, but you know, if, if this helps institute some much needed changes, then at least it won't be in vain, I guess. And I will link the um, the fund page in the show notes so you guys can look for that. All right. So last week when we did our episode about vampires, there was one 
category of vampire movies that we left out. And I'm just going to pretend that we did that on purpose so that we could transition into our main topic for today. (laughs) Um, But that is black vampire movies. (laughs) And... That transition comment will make sense in a minute, I promise. <laughs> but, um, Lauren, why don't you start us off with this one? Because uh, you have seen way more of these than I have. <laughs> well, I, honestly, I'm ashamed that, that I, you know, and I'm going to call this my oversight because I just basically forgot to add it to the to the agenda. <laughs> um, and 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 I'm, ash- I'm also ashamed of that because this also includes, this category happens to include one of my favorite vampire movies (laughs) um which is scream blackula scream and yes that is an actual title of an actual film that is much better than than what it sounds like um so yeah i I think that alongside um you know vampire films uh particularly into the 1960s and 70s when you begin to get black exploitation films and a lot more diversity in filmmaking generally uh you begin to get sort of black exploitation takes and that's where that's really where it started um on the vampire and the, the most famous being the blackula films uh and no the character is not actually named blackula that is just kind of the marketing device that they <laughs> used um i'm trying to remember his actual uh his actual name um played by just a second Played by William Marshall, who is just marvelous. It's it's Prince uh, Mamuwald, and the the whole backstory of this character is that he is a um, he is an African prince. He's a Nigerian, I believe, a Nigerian prince. Yeah, um, who goes to Dracula <laughs> to 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 ask him to help suppress the slave trade, and basically Dracula insults him and mocks him. And um, and then transforms him into a vampire. So he's this um, so he's this vampire who is sort of imposed upon by whiteness, right, in the in the form of Dracula, and then come, and then is resurrected in the first film and wreaks havoc on everybody. One of the interesting things about Blackula, both Blackula and Scream, Blackula Scream, which also happens to star Pam Greer, which is why it's <laughs> a, actually a better film than Blackula, I think. Um, but it's it's this kind of using that so some of what we were talking about last week using the vampire as kind of symbolic of white supremacy and white control. But then you also get within within the character of Blackula. Blackula, and this is especially true in the second film, um, primarily targets people who are out to hurt other black people and it's an interesting kind of dynamic because in the second film there's there's a sequence where he goes after a pimp um a a black a black pimp and what he says is you know just like you are enslaving your sisters um so there's this undercurrent of slavery and also uh violence within the black community and um and blackula is being this kind of avenging angel almost that and he's he's also he's also treated as the villain in in a in a certain sense but there's that element of like the vampire this vampire gaining a great deal of power this black man gaining a great deal of power as a result of white supremacy um and sort of turning that monstrosity on uh on the people who are trying to enslave his people 
So it's a really interesting dynamic, made even better by the fact that in the second film, Pam Greer is a, um, I believe, an anthropologist who is researching uh, the tribe that that Mamawad comes from. And, uh, and she gets involved with him. And there's this very fascinating dynamic between the two of them. It's just, just <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I'm assuming you have not seen Blackula or Scream Blackula Scream. <laughs> I've seen Blackula. I've not okay. seen Scream Blackula Scream, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta check it out, man. <laughs> I know. I want to. I think it was on Shutter, and then I missed it or something. I don't remember. Yeah, it was on Shutter for at least a little while. I think it's probably rentable. Honestly, the first time that I watched it was on, I think it was on a YouTube version of it um, that mm. someone had uploaded. So it's it's worth seeking out. And I do think that on par, it is actually a better film than the first Blackula. Cool. Um, help, like I say, helped by Miss Pam Greer. Yeah, well, everything's better <laughs> with Pam Greer in it. <laughs> That's just all facts. Um, um, go on. No, uh, go ahead. What were you gonna say? Well, I was I was gonna move on to the uh, slightly more um, complicated, I guess, understanding of black vampires with Ganja and Hess. That was where I was gonna say we go next too. <laughs> yeah. So, what what are your thoughts on Ganja and Hess? <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if I've actually seen the whole movie. I've seen parts of it, but I don't know if I've seen the whole thing. Actually, I was thinking about that this morning. I don't specifically remember. Well, it's it's an it's an interesting film because it's it usually gets labeled black exploitation, but it isn't really. It's it's very experimental. Um, it's directed by Bill Gunn, uh, and and again, you're it's coming back to some of these um, some of these African African uh, roots, right? And there are African vampires, right? There are there are long African traditions of um, of vampiric figures, right? They're not exactly vampires because um, we tend to impose that kind of name onto them. But um, this this concept of you know bloodsuckers of of the living dead, all of that kind of thing. Um, and this, I think, that Ganja and Hess gets really interesting because you get into um, this. This kind of going back to it's it's something that was that was concerning a lot of black filmmakers, particularly in the 1970s, um, removing themselves not just from white society but from the Christian church, which they viewed as being imposed upon them by whiteness, which is is absolutely accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, but so and so the attraction of the vampire, I think, in in something like Anjan Hess becomes this kind of rejection of all of those impositions of whiteness in favor of African roots. And um, and that's kind of where the dialogue within that film gets going. It's an odd film though. It isn't an easy to read film particularly. Right. And it was remade by Spike Lee. Yeah, as um as the, the sweet, sweet blood, blood of, Jesus. of Jesus, yeah, yeah, and it came out. That came out in twenty fourteen. Did you know that that was like one of the first films that was funded through Kickstarter? Really, I didn't like not the, know one that. of the first feature films. Yeah, I mean, it's a good. It's actually a good film. It's much more linear, I think, than, than Ganja and House. Um, and and it but it deals with a lot of a lot of the similar things. It's again using that that concept of the vampire both as this sort of source of power 
but also as this this literal representation of uh in this case whiteness bleeding black people right bleeding people dry mm -hmm. um and and cursing people and so you have that that conflict that's going on the the entire time um and yeah i i don't know entirely what to make of it especially ganjan has has been has been talked about a lot but it isn't it is a very strange film and a very different understanding of vampires and vampirism than we tend to get in you know more of the white mainstream films mm -hmm. yeah um one of the films that kind of goes into the mainstream or one of the film series i guess is the blade trilogy which is apparently going to be remade they said it was they've announced that and mahershala ali will be taking over but um the i don't i never actually saw the blade movies <laughs> i don't know why i just didn't so but they are extremely popular and i was in hall h at san diego comic-con a couple years ago when they announced the new movie and i heard that whole auditorium erupt with applause so i was just like well all right these are more popular than i realized well and we mentioned the blade films uh i think last week when we were talking about this this idea of kind of and and blade i i kind of resist saying that it's defanging the vampire because blade um, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've seen the films. If I remember correctly, he's sort of half vampire, yeah. half human, right? Yeah. And so he's able to go about during the day. He's able to resist the the vampiric blood drive and and all of that. Uh, and and so he sort of makes it his mission to defeat vampires. Um, and I mean, I think the best the best one of the series is definitely the one directed by Guillermo del Toro, um, Blade Two, I believe. Uh, which just you know and, and del toro himself is very into uh very into vampires and um and particularly made a great spanish language vampire movie called chronos which again very different vampires not quite what we expect uh but but blade still has that you know i i think that there's an there's always an inherent power when you see a black action hero with blade there's even i think it's interesting to see this this black man kind of taking on the mantle of the vampire and all of the power that that represents but also the danger that it represents um not just to other people but to himself yeah so it's it's an interesting thing that there's like this sort of subgenre of black vampire movies and vampire films that directly engage with um with blackness or just non-whiteness you know so vampires so often are represented as you know the kind of the white people pale washed out um european etc and and to have like to have these films that make much stronger reference to african roots and um and to some of the the issues that are inherent in the vampire mythos i i think is really interesting to actually have that and i hope that we get more i'm sure we will i yeah i don't know maybe we won't i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it seems like vampires kind of go through all the monsters go through cycles so it's like we yeah. have had zombie movies for a long time i think we're gonna come back around to vampires and i think that vampire movies being made now while there's so much more of an eye to social commentary i mean not that that didn't always exist but i don't know like just the way that that stories are being told now i think that 
there's such an exciting opportunity to really use the vampire tropes and themes yeah. from around the world to tell all kinds of interesting new stories or even to put a new spin on old stories too yeah exactly i mean look look up sometimes one of my favorite things from uh, last year someone posted like a long twitter thread about um african traditions of vampires it's mm-hmm. fucking terrifying oh yeah like these are some truly frightening monsters and uh and very different like it's a very from what we kind of typically think of as the vampire right and uh and it's fascinating it's just like oh my god people take these put them in movies this is a great like this is a great (laughs) angle to to carry through um the one other film that i did want to mention before we get into the topic uh is is vampires versus the bronx which is not exclusively black but it is um it is poc and that one's interesting because it's about gentrification. Uh, mm. it's, it's about literally vampires, white vampires moving into uh, neighborhoods in the Bronx, displacing, um, displacing black and, and, uh, and uh, people of color and, and draining the life of the neighborhood. And it's, it's, a, it's a really fun film. It's about a group of kids who decide to fight back against these interloping white vampires. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very much a good companion piece, I think, to, to Boys from, from County Hell that I talked about last week. Uh, and that's on Netflix, by the way. So nice. check that out. It's fun. Nice. One, uh, speaking of vampires being in New York... Um, one that I quite enjoy is Vampire in Brooklyn from 1995 with Eddie Murphy and Angela Bassett. And, um, oh, look at that. It was directed by Wes Craven, who we're talking about today. (laughs) Um, have you seen Vampire in Brooklyn? I have. I only just saw it last year. Uh, it was on Hulu, I think, and I was like, oh, this is one I have not seen. And I was like, oh my god, this is fan-fucking-tastic. Oh my gosh. It's so silly and weird and funny. And Eddie Murphy as this, like... Because it's... um, it, it, This is not uh, African vampires. This is Caribbean vampires. Because he's from... Uh, I can't remember which country, but he's definitely from somewhere in the Caribbean. Which it. So then it has this tie-in to Angela Bassett's character's mom, who was from the same place and um, before coming to New York. And um, it's... <laughs> I love how um, it really does just drive into kind of some of the things that we were talking about last week with, um, like, that charming, but there's something terrifying. And Eddie Murphy's character, this this vampire, he comes in on this ship. So it, it reminded me a little bit of Dracula, actually, um, in the opening, because he shows up on this ship and everybody on it is dead. Um, except for him, of course. And because he's killed them all. And uh, then he just starts kind of running amok through, through Brooklyn. Um, looking for the one. He's he's trying to find the one. And uh, that one, for him, turns out to be a local cop. And um, she has opinions about that. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just such a fun movie. It's, it's like, kind of just, like, hilariously gory. 
um, you've got this this guy that he um, takes on as as sort of his familiar Julius, who was um, played by Kadeem Hardison, who was from a different world, which I loved that show. And just watching his body just deteriorate and fall apart, just get grosser and grosser is hilarious. Everything about this movie is so funny. If you haven't watched it, you should. Yeah, and and you know, in terms of what we were what we were talking about about this this whole idea of the the the, the black vampire taking on some of this power, but also some of this danger. I think mm-hmm. that this this film because it's almost exclusively um, a black cast, right? Yeah. It's so it does have a lot of affinities, and, I, and it even makes references in some places to to Blackula and to kind of black exploitation films of the past, which I'm certain that Craven is um, is conversant with, because mm-hmm. uh, he he know he knows his horror, he knows what he's doing when he makes references to older films. Oh yeah, um, and but so so then you get the story that is about masculinity it's about it's about specifically about black masculinity um it's about black people preying on each other um and and also about you know this sort of rejection of some of the the vampiric trappings i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, yeah it i think it's quite funny um a lot of people oh it's were hilarious like, oh this isn't a funny movie it's just like well it is i mean it's like a scary <laughs> violent horror film but it's also really funny not not least because eddie murphy is there but he's actually very comparatively subdued for for what you would expect is like oh this is a movie where eddie murphy plays a vampire yeah especially for the time period because this is 1995 this is coming off of movies like um um the nutty professor and stuff like we're used to seeing eddie murphy in these just like big hilarious like rolling on the floor laughing movies and this isn't that but it's also still very funny angela bassett is great in it too yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm amazed actually like i was just scanning through this it has a tw- rating of 12 percent on rotten <laughs> tomatoes that's insane it really that's is. like that's like i i think that there are a lot of people who just haven't watched the movie or haven't rewatched the movie because it's 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 fun like at, at worst it's fun <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's definitely um, like there's definitely some stuff that hasn't aged well as far as like the like it's very much a product of the time, but it's uh, yeah it's fun. Just go watch it. <laughs> so, all right, well uh, that brings us to Wes Craven, uh, who was born. Wesley Earl Craven in <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio in 1939. And um, I did not see his very first film. I thought I had, but then I went back and looked and went, nope, I definitely haven't seen that version of The Last House on the Left. <laughs> um, have you seen it? You have not seen it. I, I've not seen it. This this is one of those horror films that taps into exactly the things that I do not want to see. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that doesn't mean like I, I've heard really good things about that's a very well made film that it, it is it is kind of a, a seminal horror piece of horror. Um, it's just not something that I want to experience. And uh, I, I admit that some of Wes Craven's early films generally are not things I want to experience. Hills Have Eyes is not something I ever want to see again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, once was enough on that one. Yeah. So let's 
let's start with this. What was your first Wes Craven movie? Uh, I would have to think. Actually, I think that was probably Scream. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember if I saw Nightmare on Elm Street before that, but I think that the first the first Wes Craven film that I actually saw was Scream, and I would have seen it very late. I didn't see it when it came out. Um, but so it's interesting because it's it's so referential to himself right and it's such a referential horror film um and and deals so much in in kind of the concepts that he him that he himself helped to create mm -hmm. uh but it's it's interesting that it has become such an iconic film very often you know people are asked oh, what's your favorite west craven film one of the first ones that comes up is scream uh but i mean there i remember seeing um, it was similar to the experience of watching Psycho for the first time for me, but seeing that opening sequence with Drew Barrymore in Scream and being scared, but also being like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. Like that that combination of being like, this is really horrible, but it's also really funny. And I want to, I want to see this. It was very <laughs> like, it's this very visceral reaction, I think. So it's funny because I remember the press tour for that movie before it came out. And I wasn't into horror. I was actually pretty terrified. My first experience with Wes Craven was Nightmare on Elm Street, but it wasn't me sitting down watching the whole movie. I was like eight years old. My brother and I, like we were over at my grandparents' house and all the adults were in another room. And so my brother and I were just like sent off to my grandma's bedroom to turn on the TV and just watch whatever. And you know, this is back in the day. There was no guide to flip through. They had a TV guide, but, you know, <laughs> you, you just kind of turn the channels and see what's on. And um, so we were flipping the channels, and which you had to do manually back in those days. We did not have a remote control either. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so we stopped on this movie where there's this girl and she's got all these things hooked to her and she's like in a bed and she's having this dream and then she wakes up and she's holding a hat <laughs> and we had no idea what the movie was but i was freaked out i was so scared we changed the channel watched something else i don't know what but um that was my first experience with nightmare on elm street later i did see it but um i think actually it's funny because i think vampire brooklyn was my first west craven movie officially <laughs> but um but yeah so but when uh, when Scream was coming out and they were doing the press tour for it, um, I remembered, I mean, Drew Barrymore was front and center. She was the main person that was doing all the interviews. The rest of the cast were still, I mean, Courtney Cox was well known because uh, of Friends, but uh, the rest of them, Nev Campbell, uh, really, if you didn't watch Party of Five, you didn't know who she was. And... Um, which I did watch Party of Five, so I did know. But uh, but yeah, like Drew Barrymore was the number one girl on the poster. She was the person that was doing all the the interviews and stuff. And I remember, I knew the movie was coming. I wasn't into horror, so I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to watch it. And then Drew was on, I think it was the Rosie O'Donnell show, and they showed that like her clip because it's the only one she's in in the movie spoiler alert um but they showed that scene the first like the first the first section of the phone call before things really start to turn and it ends with why do you want to know my name because i want to know who i'm looking at and that was the moment i was like 
okay, I want to see this movie. I've got to know more. <laughs> <laughs> and that was so effective. That scene, that whole opening sequence still is, I think, one of the best opening scenes, not just for a horror movie, not just for a Wes Craven movie, but for any movie, I think. It's so effective, and it really just gets you into the mood yeah. of what you're about to watch. Yeah, it really does. And it's it's also, you know, talking about meta meta narrative. That's it's what he's doing, what he what, and what they did with the the um, PR campaign mm-hmm. is very much what Hitchcock did with um, with Psycho. You know, you put your biggest star, right, the person that everybody knows, kind of front and center. And what they don't tell you is, by the way, she's going to die within the first. <laughs> you know, in in the case of Scream, within the first five minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and with with Psycho, you know, the first half hour of the film. But it is that like. And, and I think that the effect of it and the effect that, that you have with Scream is, okay, I don't know what this is going to, what, what's going to happen next, right? I don't know what this is really going to be about because you've taken the expectations that we have of this genre and upended them. So, yeah. so now, and, and I, Craven is definitely doing that purposefully. So now it's like, okay, now we're going to tell you the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really effective technique. It's so simple, but it is so effective because it's, and all of the screen franchises are about audience expectations and what we know about the rules of horror and, um, and how we expect horror films to act and people in, and how we expect people in horror films to act. And so much of that series is about um, breaking that down and, and revealing sort of the, I think uh, to to a certain degree the commentary on how much we enjoy this and how we enjoy seeing you know people being brutalized uh and murdered and and everything and what effect that ultimately has on us yeah you know what's what's crazy about Scream and I was really thinking about this last night because I was revisiting Scream 4 and it's so it starts off with this really brutal very violent um very horrific murder in the opening scene. And then you don't see another murder for a long time after that. There's some, there's like, even the, the next scary scene takes a bit because um, they go through and start introducing characters and stuff. So it's another like 20, 25 minutes before you even have another scary scene. And then much longer even than that before the next person dies. And it's funny because it's like it's sort of like you don't realize that the phrase "don't start believing" doesn't show, "don't stop believing" <laughs> doesn't show up in that journey song until like thirty seconds from the end. Like it's so effective and so well constructed that you don't realize that. I don't know. It's kind of funny. Well, and and what Craven understands, I think, in all of his films is that so much of horror is about the anticipation of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? You're sitting... So... And that and Scream does that, again, just in terms of its status as a horror film. It does it really effectively. We see what the stakes are, right? We know that there is this, this masked killer yeah. um, who is brutally murdering people. And then we're going to, and then we're going to be like, okay, here are all of these people that we're going to introduce you to these friends, you know, that we have all this backstory and everything. This is, you know, pretty typical American town, typical American kids <laughs> kind of thing. And it, it's similar, you know, in that sense to, to Halloween, which, which kind of start all of this, that um, you know, that the horror is coming, you know, that the, the violence is going to start. 
but part of what you're doing is you're guessing, you're guessing who did it and you're guessing who is going to die first. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were like, Oh, is that guy going to get killed next? Or is she going to get killed next? You know, all, and then, you know, you begin to develop all of those rules right. about, um, about how, you know, what the kill list looks like, how this is all going to progress. But so much of it is about kind of ramping up that tension. We're waiting for that scene. We're waiting for the next scene of violence. Um, and the longer we have to wait for it, uh, if you balance the tension right, the better it is. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that's interesting about the way that he sets up the characters in Scream is that, you know, this does take a lot from films like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, but the big difference is that the killer is from within and you kind of get that sense it's not you don't there's not this like mysterious you know being that's on the outside coming in and killing people you kind of know pretty much from the beginning that you should suspect that it's someone that they know and yeah that's someone that's someone you're introduced to in the film is the killer right and then there's all these like it's kind of funny because there's there's these red herrings sort of and but it's also interesting because billy is the obvious culprit from the beginning of the movie like he's so intense he's so creepy the way that he like kind of just shuts down so you're like hey don't talk about that you know or whatever like the way that he does that and these like intense looks on his face it's uh it's kind of funny because he's the obvious one from the beginning. And so when you find out that it's him, it's not that big of a surprise, but the big surprise is finding out that he's not by himself, that there's actually two killers. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and it, it all makes sense. And I also have to say, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Matthew Lillard in this film. Yes. Who is so strange <laughs> and yeah i mean matthew lillard i've come to realize really is an underrated uh, actor mm-hmm. <laughs> from, uh, particularly in this period he understands the assignment in every film he's in he does um he does. and he's he's so odd in scream and also so delightful in his own way and so when you get kind of the revelation of who done it right um, it makes perfect sense. It works perfectly well. And you're just like, yes, these are exactly the kind of guys that would be the serial killers. Of course they are. <laughs> His line of, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you have you heard his thing where he says that Stu didn't die and he actually ended up going to prison and that Wes confirmed that? really <laughs> that's that's what he claims so i don't know maybe he'll show up in scream 5 we'll oh see God. did you know that he had a cameo in scream 2 i, I don't even know. know if i could call it a cameo he um because he doesn't have any lines or anything but he plays this kid that's at the frat party toward the beginning of the movie when um sarah michelle geller's char- character gets killed because she's not at that party mm-hmm um, when they're kind of going through the crowd, you can you can see it's super fast. You have to really know where to look. Um, but you can see him dancing in one of the <laughs> one of the shots. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, maybe he uh, got let out of prison for the day to go to that party. 
my god well you know we've got scream 5 coming out so I know exactly it, you know and that's the thing if he shows up in it I feel like at this point I wouldn't be surprised but I, I wouldn't be surprised by, by just about anything to be honest yeah um, at this point i mean i i think that the scream franchise is a fascinating franchise because i would argue that every single film is is loads of fun oh yeah they're um, great uh you know i definitely there's it's definitely weaker the scream two and three are i think weaker films in a lot of ways i fucking love scream four i do not know why people were so mean about it because it is a reboot it is exactly what they say it is <laughs> here's here's my personal theory on it and and i could be wrong um or at least you know this is probably true of some people i think what it is is a lot of the fans of scream were either in high school or college when the first trilogy came out and when the next one when scream 4 was released like 10 years later um I think that it just, for them, for a lot of those folks, because it was a really more, you've got the main three, obviously, but really the movie is more about this next generation of kids. And I think that there was a sense of like being out of touch of like, well, mm -hmm. this isn't the scream I remember, therefore it's not as good. Because it's about yeah. different people. Yeah, it's about different people. It's about a different generation. It's also kind of calling out the whole concept of reboots and remakes. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's no longer the sequel, it's the reboot. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there. so yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It is that sense of this is this is no longer my thing, man. You're taking it over. It's just like, that's the fucking point, dude. Yeah, that's like exactly. That's the whole point of this. I'm sorry you don't, you're like missing the point of this meta-narrational horror series. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. It, well, and it was amazingly prescient about social media and where yeah. we are now and the way that so many people don't care about friends. They care about fans. How many followers do I have? Why aren't people following me on my socials? You know, and that's that's 100% mm -hmm. um, what drives the killers in that movie. And, and this is like, I mean, Twitter was still fairly young at the time. Facebook was, was really taking hold, but... Um, you know, Twitter and Instagram were not the driving forces then that they are now. TikTok didn't even exist yet. So it's just interesting to, because to, like I said, I watched it again last night. And um, it's interesting to watch it now, 10 years after it came out, looking at how much more of a hold those things have taken on mm -hmm. our lives. And how yeah. much more people crave attention and status than ever before. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's back up and talk a little bit about some of of Wes Craven's earlier stuff, and then we're going to circle back around to the more recent things, which actually ties into a question that we got. But um, so neither of us have seen The Last House on the Left or The Fireworks Woman, um, <laughs> which both sound uh, really fun. Um, 
I think, like, like I said, the first the first review of the Fireworks Woman on Letterboxd is, so I've seen the Wes Craven porno film. It's like, <laughs> and it is a film directed by Wes, a porn film directed by Wes Craven. <laughs> that is exactly what this is. Which, considering it's a movie about a brother and a sister, is not the description you want to hear. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not going to watch that. Um, but... The Hills Have Eyes was his third film. That came out in 1977. And that one is, I believe, on Shudder. You can watch it now. It's on Shudder. I think think it's available on on a lot of places because it's, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's about a family who's traveling and they... Do they break down? Something happens to their yeah. car, I think. Yeah, and of course, they break down kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And um, it's this kind of creepy place that they're not supposed to be. Someone warns them <laughs> that this is a dangerous area to be, especially at night. And then we soon find out why. And it's because there are there's a family of... Um, they're described as violent savages <laughs> that are out there that are just looking for uh, for blood, basically. Not vampires, yes. though. They are, um, how would you cannibals. describe it? Well, yeah, <laughs> they're cannibals. But I mean, they're aren't they the results of like radi- radioactive, like isn't it t- yeah. weapons testing or something? Yeah, it's it's like they're they're. My memory is that it's like they're mutated, inbred um, cannibals. Yes, yeah. But I feel like it was partly because of like, because this is like out in the desert. Yeah. And I feel like it's partly because of weapons testing that that was kind of what facilitated the, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Like the, uh, my gosh, what's the word? Anyway. The transformation, the, the sort violence, of no, the savagery. none of that is the word I'm looking for, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. You get the point. Yeah. Um. Anyway, what are your thoughts on the hills have eyes? Uh, it is deeply unpleasant film. Yes. Yes. Um, it is. I I find it interesting because you know I I think that one of the themes that runs through a lot of Craven's work is about not really about monsters per se, but about the monstrosity of human beings. Um, a lot of his villains are really human beings that are that become monstrous for some reason, and very often simply because they enjoy the savagery of of the violence and everything. And I think they also have eyes definitely kind of catalyzes that because the fam the family reacts to their brutalization very in in one sense very naturally but very violently, right? They become violent in themselves. And, and that seems to be what a lot of his films are about, the people reacting to violence with increasing violence. Uh, you know, at, at the same time, like I said, it's not a pleasant film. It's not a film that I want to see again. You know, I've watched the Scream films multiple times. You know, I'm perfectly okay with that. I, I don't want to watch The Hills Have Eyes again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very disturbing. And... Like, I mean, partly cannibalism is not a pleasant thing that I like to watch about, watch movies about, but also just some of the things that, that happen. There's a baby and I think the baby gets taken if I'm not, I, I'm having a hard time remembering specifics now, but, um, 
anyway, it's there's yeah, it it it's the the brutality of it is very it's not fun and it's not um I don't know, it's 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 deeply unpleasant to watch. Well, it has a lot of affinities with um, similar films being made about, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure, right? yeah. But there's, like, that, um, that you know, and, and there is this kind of redneck exploitation almost. It's the, it's the rural family that is, you know, killing everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but that sort of bleakness, I think, and this, the purposelessness of the violence, um, that it really is about human savagery, essentially. Yeah, it was referenced in the X-Files episode Home, one of those infamous <laughs> episodes too. So, yeah. Is that is that the one where they find like people living under beds and shit the, like that? The it's one like... woman living under the bed, yeah, yeah with no yeah. arms and no legs. Yeah, and, I hate yeah. that. I hated that episode uh-huh. so much. This is exactly the kind of horror I don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not fun. Um, but then we move into um so this is late 70s now and um so after the hills have eyes then he does let's see then he uh i've never seen deadly blessing have you seen that one I haven't actually. I've I realized having gone through some of his films, I was just like, oh, so I don't really know much about Wes Craven until we hit Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, same. And like, other than The Hills Have Eyes, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street's the next one that I saw because I never even saw the sequel to The Hills Have Eyes. Um, did not feel a burning need <laughs> to watch that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So okay, so let's jump into A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the big screen debut of Johnny Depp. <laughs> May he rest in peace someday. Uh, nice. <laughs> oh, Johnny, you're so cute and sweet. And oh my gosh. Innocent. He was just, yeah. <laughs> what happened there? It makes me so sad. Oh. Don't do drugs, kids. Anyway, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I just rewatched this last night for the first time in I don't know how many years and realized how much of it I did not remember. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's funny. It's such an iconic film, but I think I've seen it twice and each time I've had the same experience where I was like, I don't remember this happening in this movie, but okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I remember more of like images from the movie than I did anything about the story. Like I forgot that, um, like, I don't, I think someone explained it to me really badly years before I ever saw the whole actual movie start to finish. And so I think that's the version of the story that stuck in my head. So it was like, and which it was, must have been from one of the sequels, but like about him getting stuck in the boiler room and stuff. And so I, in, in my mind, um, the reason that that Freddy Krueger in the very first movie is going after these guys is because, um, because he believes that their parents tortured him when he was a child. And it's like, no, that's actually not what happened. Uh, he was a child murderer. And when he wasn't being punished for his crimes, then the parents kind of banded together to take care of business themselves and do a little vigilante justice. 
um, is the story of the first movie. So I did not remember that. And then I was watching it last night going, oh, this is different. (laughs) (laughs) And it's fun and it's gross and it's delightful. That's it's the kind of of horror movie that is fun to watch because you can watch it now having come out 35 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so all the effects are super dated. The blood is bright red. It is not blood colored. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, it just makes it like, it's just a fun experience. Yeah, very much so. And I love, I think that what makes this film still hold up despite, you know, some of, some of the inherent hokiness of it and the fact that it's so iconic, right? Um, we know the image of Freddy so well now. Yeah. Uh, but I think what makes it hold up still is this this notion of a killer who gets you in your dreams mm-hmm. is still very frightening. And um, because that that is the place where, you know, you're like, I can't control it. I I can't, you know, he, if he can get into my head, if he can like embed himself into my subconscious and that's how he gets you, uh, that's, that's very frightening. And it seems to be something that comes back in a number of Craven's films about this, the subconscious nature of the killer, um, the, the monster, you know, and, and it is playing on all those childhood fears, the monster that lives under the bed, the monster that you kind of imagine and almost bring into existence. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why when I saw just that one scene when I was a kid and had no context for the movie, but it terrified me because, you know, I was still I was still at that age where I was having a lot of, like, bad dreams as your brain is just, like, kind of learning how to process the world around it and how horrible it is. Um, I was having a lot of bad dreams at the time, and just the idea that, that those things could come out into the real world and still get you was was a terrifying concept and it's just so so well um so well done in this and it also there's just some great death scenes too (laughs) yeah there there are and it's it's interesting what affinity nightmare on elm street has with um a film that he then makes i think about four years later something like this nightmare on elm street's 84 and then the film that i just watched last night serpent and the rainbow is 88 and it has a similar kind of referentiality in that the a lot of it is about belief Mm -hmm. and about um the the monstrosity kind of getting you in your mind right the it's what you believe you're seeing versus what is actually happening right and so it's this melding of dream and reality that is really quite scary um, and the idea that there are monsters that can destroy you from within your own brain yeah. is, is just, it's such a simple concept, but I think that Craven makes great use of it. Um, and, and it does go back to that inherent understanding of what we find horrible is not, is not necessarily the, the real life killer or whatever, but the thing, the idea that the thing that we imagine um, is coming after us. Yeah, and it really drives into that that point of, like, if you give these things power, then that's what makes them able to take, take over. You know, like, if... I, I mean, obviously, in the context of the film, it's not so 
easy to just say, well, I'm just not going to dream about that. But it's, it's when you become fascinated with these things and you start to entertain them in your mind that you give them the power to, to control and, and to emerge. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have not seen the serpent and the rainbow, but I will watch it. I promise. I, I think the serpent and the rainbow is interesting in terms of the arc of Craven's career, because it does seem to be him like grappling with the, I don't want to say the real life, but some of the bases, the, the bases of um, uh, of a lot of the kind of horror that he's making. So it's it's based on Wade Davis's book, The, the Serpent and the Rainbow, which is an actual anthropological study that Davis did in, in Haiti um, about zombification and the creation of zombies. And now Craven kind of takes this in its own direction. And so it's very much based on Davis's concepts, but not really... Um, not the same story right uh but that it's it's dealing with those kind of you know zombies and then the concept of zombification the concept of the walking dead the ability to come back to life after death all of that um and to be controlled by other people uh is such a major aspect of horror but very seldom is that aspect actually addressed from the culture that created it right um, the culture that it originates from. And so it's interesting to see kind of Craven grappling with some of that to greater and lesser extents. I mean, I, I, the, the conclusion of the film, I think he kind of just goes off into the, its own horror kind of world. Um, but it's a really interesting film to actually think about him dealing with the uh, origins of some of the concepts that he uses in his other films. Yeah. Um, so we move into the 90s and we have <laughs> the people under the stairs yeah what are your thoughts on that one that is a wild film um <laughs> it's been a while since i've seen it actually and i, I kind of wish i'd had i'd had a moment to, to rewatch that one because again it goes back to that that uh, the human monstrosity right so you're sort of set up and conditioned to to believe that the people under the stairs are the villains or the, the monsters right and spoiler alert as the film proceeds you come to a very different conclusion <laughs> Um, but I think the one of the things I like about that film is that there is a lot of humor in it. Um, it's almost a, an adventure film in its own way that, you know, you've got these, these horror elements to it, but um, Craven does have a very good sense of humor and, uh, and he really injects a lot of that into the people under the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've only seen it once. I saw it years ago. Um, so I don't like, I, I was trying to, to watch a few this week just to kind of refresh my memory, which is why I watched uh nightmare before a nightmare on Elm street and stuff last night. But um yeah, that's one that I, I wish I would have gotten to, especially because um someone did mention it. A uh, Connor, when we put this out on Twitter said that is without a doubt his favorite. So I apologize, Connor, that I did not get to rewatch it before um before doing this episode but i will make up for that <laughs> well and and you know what we were talking about earlier about gentrification and white people as monsters that's very much what this film does you've you've got these uh two i believe it's it's young um black men who break into this house and essentially mm -hmm. discover that the people the landlords who've been buying out their neighborhood are de are degenerate monsters <laughs> right right yeah um and and but again it, it's it's 
got such fantastic extremity in it that you know it's like oh we're gonna pay them back for what they're doing to us so it's just like oh my god they're keeping children in prison in the walls <laughs> yeah it's horrifying yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, so then, um, I mean, I guess we could go back and talk about some of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street, but I don't, I don't really feel very familiar with any of those either. I, and I think that Craven only directed one other one. Maybe. If I remember correctly. I think Maybe. it's, um, New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but so we go from, yeah, People Under the Stairs to New Nightmare. And then, um... The Scream films. <laughs> yeah. Well, Vampire in Brooklyn, then the Scream films. In the middle of the Scream films, you have his most terrifying film ever, <laughs> which is Music of the Heart. <laughs> I saw that on the list. I was just like, what the fuck? Did you ever see that movie? I don't think I've seen it, no. I forgot that it was directed by Wes Craven. Um, I actually saw that on a date once. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, this movie is not a horror film at all. Not even remotely. It stands out from his entire filmography as like a, huh, that's different. Um, it's a true story. It was about this uh, this teacher, played by Meryl Streep in the movie, who started a, a program in Harlem, I think, for basically bringing music to these kids who were underprivileged she's a teacher and um she gets a job at a school in harlem or kind of kind of talks her way into a job i don't i don't remember specifically if she was actually ever offered one or if she just kind of decided that she had one and um she starts a string uh string program there and teaches all these kids violin and cello and and stuff and so like i said it's a true story um and from what I remember of it, it's actually not a bad movie. It just is so, uh, so out there from the rest of his filmography. It just really does not fit. <laughs> so, but it did get Meryl Streep one of her 20 million Oscar nominations. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You should watch it. I will I will check it out at some point. <laughs> but yeah, it's like right it's like he'd done Scream one and two and then he does this movie, which is just like not like anything else he had ever done. And then his next movie is Scream Three. <laughs> which is also not like the other Scream movies. And one thing I wanted to say about Scream in total, like the whole series is I find it kind of funny, and this is something else I was really thinking about while rewatching Scream 4, I find it really funny how the characters learn some things from their previous experience from movie to movie, but there are other major things that they never seem to learn. Like, in the first two, you've got two killers both times, but in Scream 3 and 4, they're still referring to a single killer, like singular... <laughs> It's like, why would you assume that this is just one person? Because it can't possibly happen again, Karen. <laughs> because you go like, it cannot be that there are two killers again. Because that's just be stupid. Why would you do You wouldn't just keep on repeating the trope. <laughs> exactly. And then this isn't actually, it's kind of funny because this doesn't actually play into the plot of Scream 4. But uh, 
the the fact that in Scream 3, he had a voice changer and could actually copy all of their voices and, and make them sound like each other, there's never a moment in Scream 4 where Dewey thinks, wait, is this really Sydney? Or Sydney thinks, is this really Gale? Like, they never question <laughs> that, ever. And it's like, I know that that's not part of the plot of the movie and that never actually factors in, but just the fact that they never think about it, like, do I really trust you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny. I just had to mention that. So, um, do, let's see. Did you see Red Eye? I haven't seen Red Eye, but I think that like, since you've seen it, I think that we should talk about it because a we number of people, um, in, including uh, including at BLC Agnew, um, so Brendan and uh, and Nanina both said that it was one of their favorites. Yeah. So Brendan actually asked us, what's your favorite later Wes Craven film? And I'm not sure where, like how to define later. Um, is that just 2000s, which would be scream three up through scream four so yeah. you've got scream three cursed red eye parisia tem which he just did one segment of that my soul to take and scream four um but yeah so he says he said screen uh red eye is his favorite and then yeah a couple of people liked that and mm-hmm. nanina was like oh yeah that one's great so um and then she said batshit third act but so good which is true so um i saw it in the theater when it first came out because I love Rachel McAdams. I love Killian Murphy. And, um, but I hadn't seen it since then until last night because you guys mentioned it. I was like, I need to watch this again. So, and so I did. And, um, basically it's about the Rachel McAdams plays this, um, manager at this fancy hotel down in Miami. And, um, but she's away because she had to uh, go to her grandmother's funeral in Texas. And she's the kind of person who work is her number one priority in life. She never takes time off or anything. So the fact that she's away um, is, you know, and leaves someone else in charge is, is a big deal. And it also kind of opens up the door for a big problem. So there's this politician who's coming to town to stay at that hotel. And... Um, there is a group never really find out who they are or ultimately what they really want but um they plan on assassinating him and so uh they send someone which is killian murphy to kind of intercept her on the plane and everything's arranged so that they can meet in the airport she kind of builds this little bit of foundation of trust with him and then oh surprise they're sitting together on the plane and it's just all been carefully calculated so that he can basically keep her hostage and force her to um, uh, to make some changes so that it can facilitate this uh, this assassination attempt. But what's interesting about it, this is a post-9-11 film, and what's interesting is that the plan, if she won't go through with it, or the way to convince her to do it, is not oh, if you don't do it, we're going to blow up this plane and all these people are going to die. It's instead, hey, by the way, we've got your dad. And if you don't do it, he's going to die. Mm. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's effective. And it's, I think the fact that it's aware and socially conscious enough to not think like, oh, yeah, we should make this about hijacking a plane. Uh-huh. Um, like, that's 
really smart, but it's also kind of like, what do you do in this situation? How do you, you know, what? How do you decide if you're gonna save your father or save this politician? Like, whose life mm-hmm. is more important? How do you really make that choice? And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a very fun like post '90s like just good thriller. It's it's a uh, it's a good movie and and two very very pretty people again with my point you do not trust attractive people that are paying attention to you because they <laughs> always want something else <laughs> they're always vampires they're terrorists exactly <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uh yeah it's a great one you should watch it <laughs> yeah that, that one has been on my list for a long time like i said it was it was between that and serpent in the rainbow last night and uh mm-hmm. and we wound up doing serpent in the rainbow <laughs> and i'm glad you did because it's good that we got to to hear a little bit about that one too so um yeah and then there's parisia tem which he did one segment in that film called Père Lachaise, which is about if i remember correctly i saw it long time ago but i think that's the one because Père Lachaise is the major like huge cemetery in paris um they're like everybody who's anybody important in france pretty much is buried there and including oscar wilde yeah so if i remember right it's this couple breaks up and he like the guy ends up having a conversation with oscar wilde's ghost and, oh, is that uh, the West Craven section? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of fun. And then, of course, his final film was Scream 4, which is kind of, in a way, fitting. I, You know, if he, if he had to go out, I'm glad that he went out on a Scream film, to be honest. And a really fucking good Scream film. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. He, uh, well, so that film came out in 2011, if I... I think so and then he was working on the um the scream series which was on mtv and um i think that had just started or was just about to start when um when he passed away so it was just kind of it was kind of a bummer that 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 happened i mean he was 76 i think when he died but he died of cancer and that's just a terrible way for anybody to go but um yeah the scream tv series is another thing that's just kind of like he wasn't i think he was a producer on it but i don't think he was gonna direct any episodes i don't remember for sure but uh the first two seasons it's definitely it does not live up to the movies but they're still just so... All three of them are still just so watchable. The first two seasons tie together. The third is a completely different story with completely different characters. And it's even much more out there. You can see a little bit less, a lot less, of the Wes Craven influence, I think, in that third season. So, it'll be interesting to see Scream 5, which I'm very much looking forward to. But the first Scream movie that he is not yeah. involved in at all. Yeah, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about Scream Five. Um, I, I hope I hope that it is a good entry into the franchise. Yeah, I hope that it's one that that we could look on it and go, "Yep, this is the movie that Wes would have made if he'd been yeah. here to make it." So, any final thoughts on Wes Craven? 
think so. I mean, it's it's interesting for such an influential filmmaker, um, just going through some of his 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 horror films almost always just hit it right on the nose. <laughs> they <Yeah>. only do. <laughs> um and because like, you know, he didn't actually make that many films. He really didn't to some other filmmakers. Uh but each of them so well, not each of them, so many of them are so iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and such a big influence on contemporary horror. It's uh, it's it, ca- it really can't be overstated. And they all, in their own ways, have staying power. Um, you know, like you can watch, well, of the ones that I've seen, um, you know, y- you could watch any of them and find things now that still relate to to things from from the time that they came out to. Oh, I forgot to mention Deadly Friend. <laughs> I skipped right over that one. <laughs> that was a weird, weird movie, by the Which way. Which you referred to as, what did you call oh. it? Evil uh, Short Circuit. <laughs> Evil Short Circuit. <laughs> Which, it was so funny because I said that because I'm like, there. I was while I was watching it, like as I, as I typed that, there was a scene that I was watching where this robot, so basically, for anybody who doesn't know what this movie is, it came out in 1986, and it's basically this kid who um, was one of the kids from Little House on the Prairie. Anyway, um, neither here nor there. Uh, but he he's this like whiz kid who has this scholarship to, I don't know, to the university, but I think he's supposed to be in high school. And he is just this genius with like neuroscience. And he's developed this, um, this like computer chip and built a robot. <laughs> so it sounds so weird to try to explain the plot of this movie. Um, but he's built a, ra- a robot that has this computer chip in it that, um, basically is able to learn. So the, the robot is able to, in some ways, become sentient. And, um, then he, becomes like he's new to this neighborhood and he becomes friends with the girl next door who's played by christy swanson and um kind of has a crush on her and she has an abusive dad who ends up beating her to death basically or knocking her down the stairs or something and so she uh she's about to die she's brain dead she's basically brain dead and um they're gonna pull the plug and so he ends up putting this computer chip in her brain so that she won't die. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But then she kind of goes on a little bit of a murder rampage. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and oh my gosh, it's so weird. But yeah, so I was watching it and I'm looking at this robot and some of the some of the things that it's doing and it's like kind of playing a game with these kids at first and that was when i made up the comment about the evil short circuit (laughs) and then i was looking up more stuff about the movie because i was just curious about you know like how did it do box office wise i never even remember it being out in the theaters or anything and i found this fact in a in an article (laughs) where it was the same chassis that they used (laughs) <laughs> for the robot in short circuit it and i was like in, oh was my god it literally is evil short circuit <laughs> that's great oh man yeah so it's another one it's batshit it's so weird wow. it's not like the effects are laughably bad christy swanson when she's like dead but not dead <laughs> she's got this weird like blue eyeshadow all around her eyes to make it look shadowy <laughs> 
It's like not good. I can't imagine the budget on this movie was very high, but um, it's delightful and you should watch it. It's I, very good commentary on why we need to stop creating AI. Stop. <laughs> that's that's the important thing to take away from this film. Exactly, the robots are going to murder us. Please understand this. Stop it. Anyway, oh yeah, uh, yeah. So. I think that's about it. <laughs> that should close us out there. <laughs> so yeah, robots gonna kill us all. Great. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. And Wes Craven told us this in 1986. So there you go. Um. Yeah. And as always, just watch more movies because movies are good, and Wes Craven made good ones, so you should yeah. watch them. And a lot of these are available. To stream in various places, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street's on um, HBO Max. I think um, Serpent in the Rainbow's on Cinemax. It's on Cinemax, and you can also uh, rent it on yeah. uh, on Amazon. There you go. Hills Have Eyes is on Shutter. Um, all the Scream movies you can find in various places. And every time I go to look for one, because I'm like, I feel like watching Scream. Every time. I'm like, why have I not bought these yet? What is my problem? Because <laughs> <laughs> I seriously watch... I watch one of them like every few months. I, I love those movies so much. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Um we really enjoy it and we really appreciate our patrons that help make the show possible um special thanks to adriana ali heather james kathleen cariata mason matt michelle monty nanina robert robert steve sharon tau and will thanks so much for keeping the lights on for us if you'd like to join their number you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and uh subscribe there um with with your subscription you get early access to episodes we have bonus episodes brides of frankenstein and the matrix are both available um we did decide to make bride of frankenstein available to everyone so uh everyone can listen to that one but uh the matrix the full episode of the matrix is only available for patreon listeners so um so if you want to hear it you got to subscribe we also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and ko-fi, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. Be sure to check out our website. We do have reviews. My review of Dune, my positive review of Dune is there, <laughs> uh, as well as mass and some other things. I'm going to be covering the AFI film festival in a couple weeks. Um, so those will be there. Lauren is going to have a review of Titan <laughs> as soon as she can figure out what to say about it. <laughs> Which, I mean, this could be months, guys. I don't know. It's like, no, hopefully, hopefully by the time this episode is, is up for everybody, I should have that review. Up. No pressure. No pressure. Um, yeah. So that's just some of the fun stuff that you can see. If you go to citizendamepod.com. You can also email us if there's things you want to see there or you just have fun thoughts only kind ones we don't like mean things um citizendamepod at gmail.com you can also find us on social media twitter and instagram we are at citizendamepod and letterboxd we are at citizendame you can also find us individually lauren where are you 
I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Hello? Oh, Stu, Stu, Stu. What's your motive? Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What are you going to tell them? Peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. I'm going to rip you up, you bitch! Just like your fucking mother! You've got to find me first, you pansy-ass mama's boy! Fuck! Fucking hit me with a full dick! Fucker, where are you? Ah, you fuck! Did you really call the police? You make your sorry ass I did. My mom and dad are gonna be 